Welcome to Founding Conversation, the podcast that pushes intellectual frontiers and promotes the values of long-term thinking, independence, entrepreneurship, and responsibility. I'm Edie Lush, your host. In this episode, we tackle climate anxiety, the fear and distress caused by the looming threat of climate change. While it is natural to be apprehensive about the significant environmental challenges we face, it's also crucial to channel this anxiety into positive action rather than allowing it to lead to paralysis. We'll shine a light where progress still needs to be made while looking at the facts of where we are in the transition to a carbon neutral world and how finance can help accelerate the change. Joining me today is Dr. Hannah Ritchie. She is senior researcher in the Program for Global Development at the University of Oxford. She's also deputy editor and lead researcher at the online publication, Our World in Data. Her hugely popular TED Talk is a preview of her new book, Not the End of the World. We're also here with Rosa San Giorgio, who's leading the environmental, social, and governance effort for Peak Day Wealth Management. She has over 22 years in experience in creating, managing, and distributing traditional and responsible investment solutions around the world. Rose has been focused on sustainability and impact investing since 2012. So Hannah, you call yourself a pragmatic optimist, but that wasn't always the case. No, that's right. Yeah. I think a decade ago, for example, I think I would have definitely framed myself as a pessimist. I think back then, it just seemed like everything was getting worse and worse and worse. It was really, really hard to see any type of progress. So it seemed to me like there was really, really no way forward on these issues. I think, as you say, like over the last 10 years or so, that's really flipped. Like I now call myself a pragmatic optimist. Um, I think the differentiation there is it's, it's not this blind optimism that like, hey, everything's fine. If we just sit back, it'll all work out. Like if we just sit back, it won't all work out well. Um, but the pragmatic uh, optimism piece is that we have the potential to drive that. And we actually are seeing change on the ground. It's just about accelerating it. I mentioned those words climate anxiety at the top, and I think you aren't alone in having been a pessimist, but talk me through this phenomenon and what you see in young people as well as the broader population. Yeah, so I think climate anxiety is a growing problem. I think for me, it's kind of always been there. I think I remember since like 12 years old or so, like being just having this real deep sense of anxiety and worry and concern about the future. And I think over time that got progressively worse to the point where it was quite crippling. And actually to me would seem like detrimental in me actually being able to take action because it became quite paralyzing. There's just this notion that we're, we're just headed for doom and there was nothing we can do about it. I think this has been a growing problem now and I think you can see it in various ways. You can see it on surveys of young people across the world. So like a large international survey found that half of young people feel like humanity is doomed. Um, I, I see it in the personal emails that, that hit my inbox where people are actually in a very, very dark place um, and they largely cite this, this feeling of climate anxiety and the fact that they don't feel like they have a future as a, as a key driver of this climate anxiety. Rosa, how would you describe yourself? And do you recognize that phenomenon of climate anxiety? There is a meaning uh, behind this, uh, uh, this feeling, you know? Uh, is the fight or flight stress response. So the reason why we have this feeling is a built-in warning system. It's about recognizing that there is something that we have to do. So actually, you know, anxiety can be a good motivator to, uh, to make things happen, uh, a sign that we need things to, uh, to change. 
an awareness uh, mechanism. Uh, so I'm not sure that climate anxiety is necessarily a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. You know, it keeps us uh, motivated. How do we use this motivation to move forward instead of paralyzing ourselves is actually the key. I think going through um, uh, educating ourselves, creating awareness, sharing information, um, encouraging action instead of paralysis, create actually community um, and collaboration around the action is extremely important. Uh, someone uh, once told me, when you feel lonely and anxious, just uh, go back to your squad. Create a squad of like-minded people with whom you are acting and making things happen and go back there. One of the things that I noticed in your book was you write that the world has never been sustainable. The world has never been sustainable. I think we have this notion that we've only become unsustainable like very recently, like maybe in the last 50 to 100 years when we've seen this takeoff of fossil fuels. I think when you go to the basic definition of sustainability, for me, it has two halves, right? There's one half, which is protecting the environment. And the notion of that is to protect future generations and not rob them of opportunities and also protect other species. So that's like the environmental lens. But there's another whole dimension to that, which is I also want to provide a good life for everyone today. Like I want to reduce human suffering. I think that everyone in the world deserves a good high standard of living. And for me, sustainability is balancing both of those things at the same time. And the argument I put forward is that I don't think we've actually done that. In the past, our ancestors might have had a very low environmental footprint, but often living standards were very poor. And one example I use there is that child mortality rates were extremely, extremely high and obviously led to to immense human suffering. Now, over the last few centuries, that's tipped the other way. So we've massively improved human well-being, but it's came at the cost of the environment. And what the argument I put forward is that I think we could be the first generation that achieves both of these things at the same time. I think in the past, there was often this trade-off, you had to pick one or the other. But I think we're now at the stage where we have the technologies, we have the political power, we have the economic power, where these things are no longer incompatible. I think if I were an economist, I would wonder if what you're saying is that we're getting the discount rate wrong. So we aren't valuing our descendants, those people who are going to come after us, as highly as we're valuing ourselves in the present. Rosa, from your point of view, what would you say? I think, you know, it's uh, just one of our innate characteristics, actually. As human beings, we have a natural tendency to prioritize immediate rewards versus future benefits. That's, that's clear. You know, we eat a piece of cake, even if, if we know that it will not be good, uh, you know, maybe for our health in, in, in the future, or we do not know, do enough, uh, you know, gym, uh, you know, and we know that uh, we will suffer when we will be old. So the fact that we, are, as human, we look at immediate rewards. The, we don't know how the future looks like means that the value of today is, is bigger than, than the value of tomorrow. And I would add that there is also a system that we have put in place that uh, supports this type of uh, myopia. Think about the political system or the corporate system. You know, we vote our politicians or we have our CEOs for five years, six years. They make decisions for society. They make decisions for a big organization and they have that timeline. They do not have longer term timeline. They do not have the 2050 uh, timeline. Uh, so it's how can we make those long term decisions as society if the way we are organized is much more uh, shorter? 
How can we make those decisions for the next generation when those generations are not represented in our political uh, ecosystem? They are not represented among the CEOs. So there is a lack of representation and a lack of you know, organization around you know, looking more or discounting better the future, as you will put it. Now, how can we change that? Uh, it, it's, very, it's very difficult, but I think you know, that by being more inclusive, so you were talking about COP28, including more views in those type of discussion and negotiation, including the young generation that has a different perspective in the conversation actually can very much help into getting this, uh, this right. Uh, giving different incentives to our politicians or to our CEOs can help actually probably discounting better the future for today. I think Rose is absolutely correct. I think the, I think the major issue with um, sustainability within, within markets, and markets are largely how, how things operate, is that the, the, the true cost of these goods is not completely factored in, which is just basically another way of talking about the discount rate. So when you burn fossil fuels, the, the price you're paying on the market does not reflect the future environmental and social damages. Now, there are ways that you can start to try and correct that. You can put a price on carbon. You can use trading schemes to do that. So there are ways by which you can tweak the system to try to um, take away some of that discounting that's just going to lead to environmental damage. I think the other thing I'd mentioned there, and this is part of the reason why I feel more optimistic than I did a decade ago, I think a decade ago, the way that these technologies, these low carbon technologies, where they were sitting on terms of price, they were very, very expensive. And that means that we were relying almost on this like goodwill or like paying forward to the future for people to buy these goods, right? It was it was really, really hard to convince countries to buy solar or wind when coal or gas were much, much cheaper, right? That was just like not in their short-term economic interests. I think what we've seen over the last decade is the plummeting cost of these low-carbon technologies. So solar and wind a decade ago were the most expensive. Now they're the cheapest. Um, electric cars, the batteries were so expensive a decade ago. They're now getting like comparable with petrol and diesel cars. I think these innovations are also leading to the fact that we less and less are having to rely on us paying this goodwill into the future because the short term economic interests are also aligning. Right, countries will just pick solar and wind regardless of whether they care about climate change. I mean, they should. I hope they would, but they'll pick it anyway just because it's the cheapest. And consumers will eventually pick electric cars just because the they're the cheapest. So I think why I'm more optimistic now is that I also see these short-term economic opportunities aligning with sustainability. And I think the other thing to add is that in addition to the cost coming down, the alternative, especially for countries that have to import um, those fossil fuels, is that they're dependent on countries which, shall we say, are complex and one may not want to have uh, dealings with. And we saw that in the last couple of, of years as well. So we know that part of the, the biggest challenge is not the rich world, but the poorer world. And we know that those developing countries need $2.4 trillion every year to deal with climate. And I've taken where this money needs to, to go from Avinash Parso, who's the influential finance envoy for Barbados's Prime Minister, Mia Motley. And she's, of course, the architect of the Bridgetown agenda. And that, that first bucket of where the money needs to go is everything that has that you have to do that has a revenue stream attached. So you do this thing and it makes money. So building a solar farm, a wind turbine, hydroelectric power. 
Second bucket is for the things that don't have revenues but do have savings, like a seawall. You don't make money from having the seawall, but you save it from all the times that that capital city isn't flooded. If you want to be a little nerdy, you can call it resilience and adaptation. And then the third bucket is that loss and damage fund to provide support to developing countries that are disproportionately impacted by the effects of climate change, severe weather events, rising sea levels, crop failures, because they didn't cause this problem, but they are affected the most. So if we leave aside the loss and damage for the moment, we start with that first bucket, everything with a revenue stream attached. You've already mentioned, Hannah, that the data around how carbon, these technologies are getting cheaper. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you see that developing and how that might set us on a, on an hopefully an exponential path towards change. Yeah, so the, the low carbon technologies, they're, they're falling very, very quickly on price. And one, what we see when solar and wind are cheaper than coal or gas, for example, and this is true for many most parts of the world, actually, what you mean there is that the price per unit of energy is less than coal or gas. But I think when it comes to finance, it's really important to reiterate how different the cost structures of renewables are compared to fossil fuels. So when you're building a solar plant or a wind plant, all of the cost of that is up front, right? So it's, it's, it's like getting the materials, it's building the panel, it's putting up the turbine. Once they're in the ground or, or on the farm, it's basically, the energy is basically free, right? You get basically free energy after that point. Okay, you may have some maintenance costs, but the costs are very, very front-loaded, which means that it's really, really focused on capital, right? It's, um, that's also why uh, these technologies are so vulnerable to, to high interest rates because all of the cost is front-loaded. Fossil fuels, on the other hand, there's some cost in building the plant, but the the majority is actually buying the fuel. So it's buying the gas and buy, buying the coal. And that's spread over decades, which means that the the costs are not so front-loaded. So when we're thinking about lower-income countries, um, it's not just about, okay, it's it's cheaper, in, it's cheaper to build a solar panel in India so it'll just get built. If people don't have the capital to build it in the first place, then it won't get built. So yes, these technologies are cheaper, but there is really a really crucial upfront capital cost that we need to take into consideration. And, uh, and if we don't have investors, primarily from the rich world, playing some role in financing this, that transition will just slow down. And I think that that's another part of this challenge is that in order to get a, a return on these investments, your investors from richer countries are expecting a certain number. Part of this is risk and the and the risk that they're taking going into countries that they may not know. Part of it is currency risk. And I think another part of the Bridgetown Initiative is dealing with this exact issue, the, the currency risk that Western or richer country investors have to take on. Maybe some of that currency risk could be managed by the IMF and the World Bank, and that's ongoing discussions. But I'd love to bring Rosa in. Give us a sense of the role that the finance sector plays here. I believe the finance acts a little bit like a, um, a catalyst in chemistry because it can accelerate and facilitate outcomes without being consumed in the process. So but as a catalyst, we can't, finance can't act on, on its own. And it's, uh, you know, the reactants to drive the transformation. So financial institutions are regulated 
by governments. So they need to have an infrastructure of governments' support to go in a certain direction. They serve customers, so they need actually to be at the service of customers or investors that are, you know, um, like mandate. They invest in corporates and in startups that need to do the, um, let's say, the work. They need to work on the innovation, etc. So I believe that the financial industry is, is a catalyst, can um, enable you know, the change and the transformation that can only do it through collaborating with the rest of the ecosystem. And, and this role is actually is not new. If you think about the Industrial Revolution, a lot of the transformation was thanks to, uh, you know, some financial capital. If you think about the railways here in Switzerland, they were built with private capital. So actually, the role of private capital in transformation um, is key. Now, if we think about, you know, the energy transition and what needs to happen, and I's perfectly right in, in sharing the, the difference in, in the financing system, you know, and, and the front load. But there is another important, I think, you know, distinction between renewables and, and fossil fuel. It's about uh, uh, the fact that uh, we can harness um, energy from solar only when the sun is out. <laughs> and uh, so it's a at some part of the day and not during the night. We can get uh, wind, uh, you know, energy from wind when wind is there. So there is a different cycle into harnessing this energy and there is a different need for storing the energy. And then there are different needs into the distribution of the energy. So one of the issues that we have today is less linked to the uh, cost of those energies, but actually the distribution and the infrastructure behind those energy. And this is where the collaboration is extremely needed. If uh, governments do not give approval for uh, uh, attaching my solar panel to the system, it will not work. If it takes three years for me to attach my solar panel to the, to the grid, it creates um, a huge problem. So financial institutions need to work with government, need to work with, uh, with the corporates, and need to work with citizens, uh, you know, for this, for this transformation. Now, how we do that? Uh, one of the first thing is capital, providing capital. So investing actually in, in those ventures that are doing the research and development and they are actually producing innovation, but also supporting the big corporates that are actually doing the change. So the big utilities that are investing in the space, for example. But it's not only about capital. In some cases, it's about uh, supporting the corporate behavior. So we are, financial industry can be an active owner, can be voting and engaging with those companies to support long-term transformation. If there is a lot of investments to be done this semester, and we know that the revenues for these utility companies will come in two years, as a long-term investor, we can vote for or we can vote against if we want to only have short-term profitability. So uh, we can uh, be very important in the process of shaping the corporate behavior. And on the other side, we can also be very important into calculating the risk of inaction. You know, when lending, financial industry lending, and uh, um, asking companies to calculate and be transparent with the transition risk or the climate uh, physical risk, actually, it's, uh, it's also a very important point. So the risk of inaction is also something that we can enable or support companies to be transparent with. And if we come to that second bucket of where money needs to move that I mentioned, things that don't have revenues but do have savings, they can be seen as a sunk cost, but that can also be the wrong way to frame it. 
And I remember in 2018, Bill Gates, Ban Ki-moon, Kristalina Georgieva, who's the head of the IMF, came together. They launched this global commission on adaptation. And they said, if the world were to invest in five key areas, early warning systems, climate smart agriculture, resilient infrastructure, mangrove restoration, and sustainable water management, as well as mobilize this $1.7 trillion between 2018 and 2030, the net economic benefits would actually be around $7 trillion. So not a sunk cost, in fact, at all. Um, I'd love you to reflect, um, Hannah, on, on that part of the changes that we need to see made in the world and what the data says about that. Yes, I think this is often framed like very unfairly as you're either doing mitigation, like reducing emissions, or you're doing adaptation. And if you're doing adaptation, then it means that you've given up on climate change and you're not uh, advocating for emissions reductions. And I just completely disagree with that. We need both. It's very clear that we need both. Regardless of how fast we move on reducing emissions, we are just going to see temperature rise for a while. And we need to make sure that everyone in the world, but primarily the poorest who have contributed least, are resilient to those disasters. Well, I mean, when it comes to like disasters, over the last century, we've we've actually made incredible progress. Like, I think one of the reasons I was so pessimistic in the past is because I was getting so many headline after headline after headline of disasters. And I think my assumption there was just that more and more people were dying from disasters than ever before. But actually, when you step back to look at the data, we've seen this very long-term decline over the last century. And that's not because disasters are not getting worse or they're getting less intense. That's not true. And we would expect them to increase in the future. But it's because we've become more resilient to them. We have early warning systems. People are richer. They can live in earthquake-proof buildings. Like we, we have more resilient agriculture. So that's like a massive gain. And the, the point is that going into the future, we need to continue to see this progress. You make me think about Bangladesh in 1970 when a massive cyclone hit and 500,000 people died. And Bangladesh is a great case because what they did was they restored their mangroves, they built early warning systems, they built cyclone shelters. And fast forward to 2019, a similar type of cyclone came into Bangladesh. And how many people died? About 20. So if a country like Bangladesh can do that and move forward on adaptation, then of course the rest of the world can. And Rosa, finance definitely has a role to play here. They can be, the private sector can be incentivized to invest alongside governments. And I'd love to hear from you what this idea of, of blended finance, which is a little bit of jargon that gets thrown around, what that actually looks like and can mean in practice. The idea behind blended finance is uh, to ensure that we can leverage different pots of capital in collaboration uh, for different stages in different ways, but in, uh, um, you know, in the same direction. And those pots of capital being uh, you know, investments for pri- from private uh, government, uh, philanthropy, and etc. Now, if we do a step back, there has always been less capital and more ideas. So we have always had a lot of ideas and actually, uh, you know, scarce capital. That's uh, that's clear. And, uh, you know, those ideas that get implemented are those, you know, that win. They sort of a natural selection. Hmm? And it has been working quite fine. Um, if uh, we, if I have an idea of a textile, a textile that doesn't need ironing and I can't find money today and I find it five years 
it's okay. So innovation has had the timing, uh, f- um, you know, driven by this natural selection. Now, the issue that we have today is that we have an urgency that is actually this, uh, um, you know, around uh, global warming, around um, inequality. And we want to be sure that we can explore more ideas than what we had in the past. And, uh, but we know that the majority of those ideas will fail. Uh, statistically, 90% of startups fail. And that's the reason why private capital um, goes into uh, you know, early stage projects or this type of project, but actually with a lot of caution. That's why you know, investors um, usually do not invest more than 5-10% in those type of projects. And now what we need is that we, uh, we need to invest more in those projects. So how do we do? So blended finance is trying to couple investments from concessionary capital, that could be the philanthropy, um, and you know, financial return capital in order to scale to invest in those more innovative ideas. Think about uh, uh, the transition to regenerative agriculture. This is, uh, is needed. And uh, it is needed because of the food systems. Uh, you know, we need more nutrition in the food that we eat. It is needed because of, um, of climate. But it is quite expensive. The transition to regenerative agriculture means that, uh, um, first of all, you need to, need to have an, an investment. An investment is in education, in tools. And then you need to reduce the profitability of farmers for a few years until you get uh, better and then you get better for the environment, for nutrition and everything. Now, we already know that the farmers are uh, um, you know, very poor. Farmers sometimes they do not get to the end of, of the month with what we pay. And probably this is linked to what Anna was mentioning uh, before, the true cost of things, so the true cost of food. But how do we actually empower that transition if uh, this, this transition is front-loaded on, um, on regenerative agriculture. And I believe that blended finance or instruments from blended finance can help there. So you can have shorter-term um, relief or risk mitigation from philanthropic money or from government money, and then combine it with longer-term private investment. So you need to, you, you will have a financing at the beginning that comes from concessionary capital and a scaling up, the scaling up that is needed because, you know, the transition to regenerative agriculture, for example, is, is a huge, uh, huge effort that can come from private investments. So I wonder if we could roll back to this issue of, of anxiety and, and reflect especially on youth, because as the mother of three who do experience some anxiety around, um, around climate and, and are very motivated to do something about it, um, I was very heartened when I was in Dubai at COP28 to meet a, a bunch of the youth international delegates to meet some of you know, the youth climate champions. So for me, it was notable that youth is part of the discussion. I wonder if you can reflect a little bit on how this might be shaping the discussion in the years to come, Hannah. I don't know if I so qualify as youth, but <laughs> I'd say um, the message from youth is like, this is, our, this is the, the, what we're going to live through from the rest of our lives and we need to do something about it now. So I think a big part of the youth is not just the action coming from the youth, but also putting pressure on older generations to also like get with the programme. I think what I find a little bit 
in these debates is that I think the generational divides are actually a little bit too exacerbated or exaggerated. Like, I think there's often this impression of young people really care about climate change, but no one else does. And I actually have just not found that to be true and actually think it's quite unfair. I think most people actually care about climate change and want to do something about it. So I actually don't like this like really strong generational divide because I think for me, like a core part of the climate discussion that I want to try to get away from is, is this constant like finger pointing. Like it's either um, generational, so it's like young generations pointing at old generations or old generations pointing at young generations, or it's across the political divide, so it's left versus right, or it's rich versus poor. So there's this constant like finger pointing. And to me, that's just not that productive at moving forward collectively. And like, for me, this is a problem solving exercise and there's large inequalities that we need to bridge in that, but it is a collective exercise that we need to move through together. So I actually try to stay away from the deliberate, like drawing lines between them and us. To me, it's not us versus them, it's us collectively versus carbon. Today, we all have uh, access to a lot of information and this is fantastic. You know, obviously it's a, it shares a lot. We all get much more educated on topic, but it's also scary, you know, because all the information that we get, you know, some of those information are useful, some are not, some are only noise, and distinguish which is useful and which is noise and which is wrong and uh, which is exaggerated is also very complicated. So, and this is not only for the young people, it's also for the older generation. I think one thing that helps me balance these like multiple feelings at the same time is like I and I have this framework in the book and it's from my colleague Matt Schroeser where he has this Venn diagram I think the core point is that we have to be able to hold multiple thoughts in our head at the same time so one of those bubbles is the world is still awful and there's like it you can pick almost any metric in the world and say like where we are today we should be dissatisfied with right we're not where we want to be on any of the health metrics or hunger or poverty or any of the environmental problems so the world is still awful but part of the work that we do on, on trying to paint a picture of where we've came over the long term is that the world is much better than it was, right? Many of these metrics are moving in the right direction. So the world is getting better and humans actually can make progress and the data shows that. I think you need to use those two thoughts to galvanise this understanding that the world can be much better. And that's where I think some of the anxiety alleviation comes from. Understanding that we face these challenges, so it's fine to be anxious, it's fine to be concerned. But understanding that we've made progress in the past, so we should be able to make progress in the future if we actually have a good go at it. I love that. In fact, I I, I highlighted that one as fact in the book. It's page 14. <laughs> there you go. That's a good place to leave it. And I just would like to thank both Rosa and Hannah for joining us on this episode and look forward to staying in touch. Thank you very thank much. You. My thanks to both of my guests today, as well as to you in the audience for listening. If you like this episode, please do subscribe to get the next one, give it five stars, and share with someone you think might enjoy it as well. And I look forward to our next encounter. <laughs>